Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. There are reports of escalating British and U.S. military and intelligence aid to Ukraine, including shoulder-fired Stinger missiles which proved very effective against Soviet helicopter gunships in Afghanistan 40 years ago. Now, this means that U.S. military intelligence, which lives in the shadow of the CIA, is going to have a major role in Ukraine. So I called up Doug Wise, a former deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, to talk about it. Well, the military does have uh, clandestine operators. The Defense Intelligence Agency in particular has the Defense Clandestine Service, formerly known as the Defense Human Service, uh, you know, building on the legacy of those like yourself that uh, conducted clandestine human activities. And so there is a very effective clandestine arm of the Department of Defense for the collection of intelligence. I'll be talking more about military intelligence with Doug Wise later in the show, but now we're going to catch up on what's been going on with all those investigations surrounding the events of January 6th. Gene? Jeff, you probably remember Michael Fanone, the D.C. police officer who was beaten unconscious and tased while defending the Capitol on January 6th, suffering a heart attack and traumatic brain injury. In the aftermath of the insurrection, Fanon called out lawmakers for downplaying the events of that day. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room. But too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. Fanon says his remarks have angered fellow officers who, he says, felt their oath was to Donald Trump, not the Constitution, believing he could no longer trust his comrades in uniform He has announced he is retiring from the Metropolitan Police Department at the end of the year. What Fanon wants is a thorough investigation and accountability. So how is that going? We checked with Scott McFarlane, an investigative reporter with WRC-TV, the NBC station here in Washington, D.C., and asked him what is most striking about the probe into January 6th. The complexity of it. I mean, this is a distinctive American moment in as much as it's the largest criminal investigation in U.S. history. And there's just a ton of video. I mean, there is almost a pile of video too tall to climb. So there's evidence and evidence and evidence, but it's complex because prosecutors have to ready all that evidence for themselves, for the court and for defense lawyers. And that's a Herculean task. And here we are nearly a year later, and they haven't started trials yet. And the cases, to a degree, are stuck in the muck at the higher levels because there's almost too much evidence to process, and they haven't figured out how to do it yet. How many people have been charged at this point? Roughly 700 have been charged. About 160 have pleaded guilty. Cases are about to close. But really, our heels are still on the starting line because those 160 are almost exclusively lower level defendants, those who pleaded guilty to misdemeanors, unlawful picketing and parading or demonstrating in the Capitol, the higher tier defendants, those accused of assault against police January 6th, those accused of damaging the American Capitol and those charged with conspiracy, those cases are in their infancy or haven't progressed to the stage where they'd be pleading guilty or readying for trial. So in those cases, the more provocative cases, we're just getting started. And they haven't even identified everybody who was there. I still get uh, notifications on my phone from the FBI with photographs saying, help us find this person. There are more to come. I think there's almost unanimity in that. We know from testimony earlier this year from the acting Capitol Police Chief that 
they estimate 800 people were unlawfully in the Capitol that day. There have been a number of people charged who were never in the Capitol that day who were accused of committing crimes outside. So the ceiling is much higher than where we are. And we know some of the higher level defendants, accused Oath Keeper conspirators have pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate. And presumably they're cooperating by helping to identify other components or other people in this investigation. So we're not done yet. And it, it goes without saying, there have also been no announced arrests of the person who left pipe bombs outside the Capitol, outside the Republican and Democratic Party headquarters nearly a year later. You mentioned the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys also involved. Do we know yet the dimensions of their involvement? They are the highest level defendants, three accused far right groups, three percenters, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. They're the ones among the dozens charged with conspiracy, of plotting, of planning, of being ready for action that day, of having some idea there was going to be a disruption. They're the ones accused of coming with tactical gear, makeshift weapons, or encrypted communications, and a plan, according to prosecutors, to breach security in one case with a military stack formation, uh, a, a dynamic stack formation that was designed to get through a mob or get through security. They're the cases that are really the epicenter of this sweeping prosecution because those are defendants who are specifically accused of organizing, in some cases, raising money or raising plans to have a, dis a destructive or obstructive event that day. What about the money? Do we know where it was coming from? We know at least one defendant has been accused of messaging others saying, if you come, it's paid for. If you come, we'll raise some money for you. But if the prosecutors have in their cards an idea of some grand funder, of somebody who helped bankroll large numbers of trips, they haven't showed those cards, at least not yet, if they have that in their cards, nor should they if at this stage of the prosecution, if they don't have to. But every time we report on cases, we take a look at, 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 the, at the success of the secondary and tertiary court filings. I can't tell you how many times I've seen defendants say, I lost my job. I, I, I don't come from great means. I, 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 I'm living in a, in, a, in a paycheck to paycheck type of existence. Well, well, how then did you get to the nation's capital on short notice, book a hotel room in this city and afford all of it? So that question is going to remain out there. And I think it's something that'll have to be answered at some point. And who's paying for their legal defense? Do we know? Well, we know there's a subset of attorneys who've taken on large clusters of cases. Um, and these are attorneys who um, may not even be from Washington, D.C. Um, we know a number of defendants have started those type of online fundraisers to raise to crowdsource money for their defenses. And anecdotally, it looks like those are pretty effective. People want to donate to the defenses of January 6th defendants who may not have the cash for private attorneys. But also, there are public defenders handling a number of these cases, you know, federal public defenders who handle cases for those who don't have means. And that office is bringing in extra manpower from all across the country. There is only about a dozen federal public defenders in the District of Columbia where all these cases are being prosecuted. And we hear during court proceedings, they're bringing in federal defenders from elsewhere to help carry the burden. As challenging as this investigation has been, it's going to be more challenging next time, isn't it? Because the defendants here have learned a lot about how law enforcement can track them down. I mean, they're not going to be posting their pictures from inside the Capitol on Facebook or on their Tinder profile next time. The charging documents are pretty unequivocal. They make clear that the social media posts are evidence that the social media posts from that day, somebody saying storming the Capitol or we want Trump is relevant evidence. And it's sitting right there on social media channels that the FBI long ago grabbed. Um, they're also using as evidence social media posts made before January 6th, including from those top line defendants who they accuse of planning. And it's worth mentioning, especially during sentencing, prosecutors will reference social media posts made after January 6th, especially social media posts that may not show a lot of um, contrition or remorse, or maybe bragging about their participation January 6th. Prosecutors will use those as an argument that the defendant hasn't shown proper remorse or full remorse, and maybe shouldn't get proper or full leniency. So social media posts are everything 
in these court files. And I would think that anybody who had a future plan to do anything akin or symmetrical to this would know that social media is not the place to articulate all your thoughts. Let's talk for a minute about the Capitol Police, who were, of course, uh, you know, ground zero here. They have new leadership. Has it made a difference? Well, we know that the front face of the U.S. Capitol Police, the public facing part of them has changed a bit with the new leadership. They've hired a, a longtime regional police chief who handled uh, the, the, some of the suburban police departments over the years to be their new police chief. They have a new public relations arm, which is um, a little more responsive and proactive with media relations. So in terms of the image of the department, it's changing things. You still have a department with a half billion dollar a year budget, a couple thousand officers that is suffering from staffing issues, as many police departments across the country are. They don't have the authorized number of police or what they believe to be the full number of police they could have. So that's an issue and that's going to impact morale. And I talked to a number of the rank and file who say morale was obviously dented severely by January 6th. And it's going to take a lot more than 11 to 12 months to repair that. What's more, though, they're recruiting. They're actively recruiting and going to need to recruit and be competitive with it because every police department in America is actively recruiting. they got to get their numbers up. There's a lot of six-day work weeks, a lot of double shifts the rank and file tell me about that they want to address. Are they having trouble recruiting? I think every police department is particularly competitive with each other, recruiting from a pool of applicants, which is finite. And the needs are almost infinite. One thing that came to light on January 6th was the deficit in training um, and poor equipment. Have those things been addressed? There'll be a hearing January 5th, 2022 about that. The Senate Rules Committee will go through. Have there been steps? Has there been progress in repairing some of the vulnerabilities to the Capitol security and the readiness of police? But you're right. I mean, some of the reports after January 6th showed that equipment broke or was locked in a vehicle instead of available to police. Um, there was a readiness issue. There was an intelligence concern. Did they not act upon intelligence they were receiving? Has that been fixed? Yeah, there's new leadership. What kind of progress has been made? Well, beyond the anecdotal, maybe we get a better sense for that when the Senate goes back into this issue January 5th. What is your um, sense of intelligence sharing and whether it's improved? It was a huge problem. Well, there's a mandate for it to improve. I mean, there has been bipartisan calls for an improvement in how intelligence is consumed, shared, and disseminated outward by Capitol Police. I mean, they got tips, and they've acknowledged as much, including the tipster who alerted the FBI's Washington field office a few days before January 6th, that there is a heavy, unique amount of traffic to his website, which shows the underground tunnel system in the Capitol. He has that website because he's a historian and it, it, he's an architecture student and he, he, he tr follows such things. He has a website that saw a flood of traffic before January 6th. Why do so many people so suddenly care about the underground tunnels of the Capitol? He flagged the Washington field office of the FBI, which alerted Capitol Police. That piece of data of intelligence didn't cause enough movement to stop <laughs> January 6th. If it were to happen again today, do you think it would be different? I think that everybody would be more ready for this unprecedented type of moment from happening again. I think everybody would be more prepared. You saw that September 18th when they erected fences again and they called in the artillery. They called in the police from other uh, nearby agencies to help and they bolstered their own manpower when there was gonna be a January 6th protest for the defendants from January 6th on Capitol grounds in September. They were ready for that. In fact, the, the amount of police by orders of magnitude outnumbered the actual protesters. Um, but are they ready for the next curveball? That's what I think senators and House members are gonna have to answer when they ask these questions, or get an answer to when they ask questions of the Capitol Police moving forward. Legislation has been passed, which says that the Capitol Police can now call the DC National Guard and get them to respond significant improvement it's it, it cuts a layer of red tape what had to happen previously as i understand it is the u.s capitol police board had to convene to make that ask and that took that took time in the past that took a couple you know cumbersome steps now the capitol police chief can do so directly but for people in the district of columbia the people who live here raise their families here and have been advocating for statehood here they'd like the mayor to have control 
of the D.C. National Guard. Right now, the mayor does not. In fact, it's the White House or the Pentagon that has control over the District of Columbia's National Guard because D.C. is in a state. People in the district would like that change to be made. That'd be a more demonstrative, um, proactive change. The Capitol Police Inspector General says only a handful of his recommendations have been instituted. What remains to be done? What are some of the big items? We would like to know what the Inspector General's recommendations are. We'd like to see the meeting minutes of the U.S. Capitol Police Board and the public report, or the, the reports of the U.S. Capitol Police Inspector General, but those aren't public records. The U.S. Capitol Police are one of the few police departments in America in existence that are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. The Capitol Police Inspector General reports are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. We don't get to see them. We don't get to read them. What we get are summations and press releases about responses, but we don't know in a granular way what the recommendations are. Um, I believe senators and House members have access to that and they can read them and they can, they, can, they can update us, but we don't get to see them in the public. And that's just not true for your local police department. Your local police department has a report. It's a public record. Your local police department's board has public meetings that you can attend or reading meeting minutes from. We don't get that. So what the Capitol Police Inspector General found, we have secondhand and thirdhand information about that, but not firsthand. What do we understand or not understand about the Pentagon uh, response on that day, January 6th? We'd like to understand an awful lot more. There was that large delay in sending the National Guard to the U.S. Capitol. This was something that began in the early, early afternoon hours, hit critical mass, deadly, dangerous uh, peaks of violence in the 2 p.m. hour. And the District of Columbia National Guard didn't finally arrive until about the 5 p.m. hour. That delay has been the source of controversy. It's been the source of political fighting. It's been the source of internal reviews. Um, I don't know that we have as many answers as we'd like, but to me, it's one of the big questions that remains. And there are several other big questions that remain still a year later. That's one of the big ones. What are the others? Aside from the pipe bombs, which is still a transcendent moment, you put that in a vacuum, in itself, what a huge story. Somebody left active, destructive pipe bombs outside Republican and Democratic Party headquarters, and we don't know who it was. A year later, that's a big question that's sitting out there. It may not be relevant in the criminal prosecutions, but who erected the gallows and hung that bright fluorescent orange noose from it um, on the west front of the Capitol that day? Haven't seen that reference in charging documents, but we do know from my reporting that the rope the noose is in the possession of the Washington field office of the FBI, meaning it could be relevant eventually to a criminal case. But the overarching question that uh, my colleagues and I ask is, whose idea was it? Was it somebody's grand idea to breach the Capitol, to go in, to raise hell, to cause havoc, and to, 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 to try to violently intercept or even kill members of the elected legislature? Whose idea was it? haven't really gotten there yet, if it was a singular idea, or was it a composition, almost a casserole of organic um, unrest that day that kind of just happened? People wanted to be disruptive in different ways, in different groups, and when mixed together, this is the stew you get. You get January 6th. That's a big question. Was it somebody's singular idea? And I think not only is the Justice Department trying to get after that, perhaps that's a good question for the January 6th House Committee, which is really digging into what led up to that day? What gave rise to it? Was it somebody's idea? That's the big question that's still there. Speaking of that committee, we don't really know everything they have, do we? No, I think that they've been particularly disciplined with how they communicate externally, which means they've been pretty good about saying only what they want to say. And that's hard for a legislative committee. <laughs> but ever. some of what they've had to say is pretty amazing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're, they're showing interesting cards and they're revealing what they need to. But you'll note they've only had one public hearing, and that was a hearing where the police officers testified and gave some pretty emotive uh, testimony. They haven't had other public hearings to show more than they wanted to show. We know that the, the data dive is deep for them. If they say they're having thousands of records and hundreds of interviews, one can only guess how much voluminous information they're gathering. But they also have an egg timer that's running. They know they've got to get this done by spring or summer 2022, and that's a lot to do in a short period of time. So you need to have discipline, and you've got to be disciplined with what you say externally to keep the 
the input coming. Do you expect more public hearings in the new year? I do. I think they're going to have more public hearings. I think they may have a crescendo of public hearings as they near the completion of their work. Um, one good congressional investigator told me you do all the background stuff first. And there's a lot of background stuff to do before you have your front facing hearings. I, I would expect it to be a pretty busy spring 2022. Mitch McConnell has made some interesting comments about the committee lately, indicating that uh, they're investigating something that the public needs to know about. What do you make of his remarks? Nothing's ever accidental with Mitch McConnell, according to my Senate watchers, uh, who, with whom I associate. He doesn't say anything uh, off the cuff. Um, is that a tacit endorsement of the House committee? Could be read that way. Is he open to accepting the findings, whereas others in his party are not? Could be read that way, but it's noteworthy. And I think, I think you're right to, to, to drill down on that, that, that that's, that's something important, even though it was somewhat cryptic. So as you've mentioned, one of the big questions is, was this somebody's big idea? Do you have any theories of the case? I think that it's, it's worth underscoring that in the thousands and thousands of court filings we've read through, haven't seen one reference, not subtle or cryptic or otherwise, to an elected member of the federal government. Um, nobody's been associated with a uh, with conspiring with a member of the elected government. Nobody has been accused of plotting or planning with a member of the elected government. And we're a year in. So I want to underscore that we haven't seen that. Um, does it mean that the, the prosecutors would tell us that yet or reveal that in any way, shape or form or that they've precluded that possibility? But some of these texts that have been recently released by the committee would seem to indicate there was some sort of involvement. The texts released by the committee, especially those in the Mark Meadows, um, component of their investigation were interesting, um, that there was clearly some type of, you know, coordination in how to message or try to you know, undermine the election or make an impactful change post-election day to the election. But it hasn't gotten into the January 6th defendants cases. There haven't been any you know, bonds or connective tissue between the defendants in the criminal prosecutions and elected members of the government or members of the administration. And we're 11 to 12 months in now. So we got to keep that. We got to be mindful of that. Um, so do you draw from that that they weren't involved or just that we haven't found out yet? That the prosecutors either aren't telling us what they're finding or looking at or that they're finding and looking at or looking and finding nothing. We're getting pretty far into this to not see it yet. But federal prosecutions tend to be slower. They tend to take a long time. And, and this being the largest one ever, this being an unprecedentedly large investigation could take many years, but people have to manage their expectations too. This is, uh, we're gonna start hearing in short order, trial dates for 2023 in these prosecutions. And I'm still skeptical. The trials begin in February um, when the first slate are supposed to get going because of the bottlenecks in the court because the courts are swimming in cases and they already had a COVID related backlog to begin with and they have limited operations, but also because of all this evidence, the fact they've got to process so much evidence and um, the deadlines might slip on that. And of course you have some people who are trying to slow down uh, any prosecutions intentionally. Yeah, I, I, th I think a number of these defendants wouldn't mind waiting, especially those who are not in jail pre-trial, those who are home, back to working their jobs and home with family, they're in no hurry to go to the District of Columbia and be prosecuted at, you know, at trial. But even beyond those people who have been charged for being at the Capitol on the 6th, um, you have uh, Steve Bannon, for instance, uh, trying to slow down the process. You have Meadows trying to slow down the process. And of course, Donald Trump appears to be trying to slow down the process. I think that's right. I think that's a little bit of a different sphere where you have the prosecutions for contempt of Congress. Steve Bannon's been charged. It's possible Jeffrey Clark and Mark Meadows are charged in short order as well. Um, do they want to go to court real soon? Do they want to have their case adjudicated right now or do they want to wait until that egg timer expires on the House January 6th committee? It may not impact their criminal prosecution, but it certainly impacts their usefulness to the January 6th committee if it is folded before their case is heard by a jury in the District of Columbia. So given the egg timer factor, do you think we are ever going to get to the bottom of this? 
I think we're going to get to the bottom of a lot of criminal prosecutions. I think that the Justice Department has has charged 700 individuals with likely more to come. Those cases will be disposed of and we will get some answers to some questions, especially as defendants flip on each other, especially as defendants ask for leniency. We, there may be revelations, large or small, when those cases get to completion. The House January 6th committee to me is a it's a unicorn. I've never seen anything quite like it. And I don't know how it I don't know where how it's going to travel. <laughs> I don't know where it's going to head. Um, I know that it has big aspirations and people have put a lot of hope and faith into the committee. And we'll see how it pays how it pays off. But I, I can say with confidence that they're going to need to finish up their work in 2022. And that's an awful lot to do in an awful short period of time. For you as a reporter, what are the items at the top of your to-do list on this investigation? First thing I check um, each time I go to the courthouse is the progression of the case of the nearly two dozen charged accused Oath Keepers. That's the bullseye for me. Um, the Oath Keepers are one of the far-right groups accused of plotting and planning, conspiring on January 6th. Um, they're the ones accused days earlier, if not weeks earlier, of having elaborate plans to be part of disruption on January 6th, even to have a bug out plan, a way to escape if all hell breaks loose, um, which wasn't implemented, even though it seems like all hell broke loose. Um, there have been a handful of Oath Keepers who pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate, including one of the first um, high level defendants to plead guilty was an accused Oath Keeper, and he's he's flipped and his sentencing has been delayed almost indefinitely as he continues to cooperate. Here's the thing. If they're the top line defendants, who are they flipping on? They're the big fish right now. And that's a provocative question and why I track that case as close as anything, because that's where the real um, intrigue lies in terms of a singular criminal case from January 6th. You are on this story 24 seven and have been for almost a year. Why? Well, it's a, a transformative American moment. This isn't just a big story uh, that happened January 6th. This is the only story I've ever covered where interest has grown in the months after. Usually there's a declining interest in a piece of news. If audience wanes, the audience thins, and the interest wanes, and the interest thins. This is the opposite. I've never seen anything like it. I get more engagement now than I did in February, March, or April. I get more responses, tips, and requests for scoops now than I did in February, March, and April. And that's what motivates me. I've never seen anything like this before. And I understand it because people recognize this is transformative to our culture, to our politics, both of which have, have people pick sides culturally and politically on this. Um, we've seen it transformative in how we view security, uh, the, 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 how we secure our federal government. It's gonna be transformative potentially in January, 2025. It could invite or dissuade future challenges to the electoral uh, college count. There's nothing like this ever before. And because it's so large, because there's 700 cases, the prosecutors to keep up with it, file motions at night, on Saturdays and Sundays, it becomes a 24-7 vocation to follow it. The only day I took off from it, by mandate, self-imposed and otherwise, was Mother's Day. Um, otherwise, we're on this around the clock because we have to be. For you personally, is there a reason to pursue it? I used to be a congressional staffer. Um, it was, I think, the most formative part of my career. Um, I never, ever had such a thrill in my life as when I was a congressional staffer. And um, it, it was a youthful time, and it was, it was an energetic time. And I, I, I have this um, deep love for the institution, not for Washington, for Congress, not for D.C., but for the Capitol. So it felt like that was pretty hollowed ground. I was watching get vandalized and that I saw be the home of violence January 6th. And that, that's a motivation for anybody who was a former congressional staff. That day will never be something we can shake. I can't tell you how many supportive emails I get from current and former congressional staff who feel this emotive connection to January 6th. I feel it. And it, 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 I can't shake it. And, I, and it's not that I, I, I view the prosecutions through a, through a prism of bias. I just view the prosecutions as particularly important to follow, um, whether there's an acquittal, a guilty plea or a conviction. So what would you say are some of the significant changes that have already come about because of these events in this investigation? We saw a prison style fence erected 
then taken down, then re-erected, then taken down again around the American Capitol, the people's house, a place that is necessarily open to the public. That impacted people. I, I mean, congressional staffers, members of Congress found it may be necessary, but also heartbreaking. I was actually quite struck when a Capitol Police officer told me he liked the fences being up, felt like he had a little extra protection and was somewhat disappointed in a way when it came down, though he understood why it had to come back down again. Um, that fence symbolized a lot and culturally had an impact. And I, I, I also think you'll talk to, if you talk to some congressional staff, they, they would raise their hand if you asked a group of them, how many of you know people who left the job because of January 6th? How many people have colleagues who quit or found other work because of January 6th? It's a pretty common dynamic. And the Congress is gonna have to find a way to repair that. They're gonna have to find a way to recruit people to come work at a place that was so desecrated and the source of such violence on January 6th. You say you relate to it as a um, former Hill staffer, but do you think also because you're a re reporter, it strikes a certain chord? It's, it, it, it's striking that somebody wrote murder the media on one of the doors of the Capitol amid the mob that day. It's striking that some members of the mob are accused of taking, breaking, defacing media equipment, even unmanned media equipment as some type of statement almost about what they think of media, that their, their equipment is to be broken, burned, or, or tossed. Um, I, don't, I, I wasn't there on the January 6th because they had limited staffing inside the grounds, but I can only imagine the horrors members of the media felt with that mob encroaching and surrounding them. So yeah, that's gonna cause a visceral reaction for everybody who covers news and covers the Capitol. Are you worried about the future of democracy? I, 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 I draw a direct line between this moment and January 6, 2025. What happens between now and then could very much impact that day. And there's some group of Americans, I think, who feel the same way. That's the group that is ravenous for information about these prosecutions and the investigation because they recognize this could impact the experiment. How we play the next three years could very much impact what happens the next time the electoral college count occurs, whether there's a challenge again, whether there's a violent attempt to impact that challenge, and whether we'll accept election results in the future. This, this moment right here changes that potentially. That's why I think people are more engaged now than they were January 7th, 2021, in what happens to people responsible for January 6th. That was Scott McFarland of NBC4 in Washington. That was really an excellent roundup, Gene. I'm very interested in what he had to say about the Oath Keepers flipping on their comrades. Yeah, he wishes we knew more. We wish we knew more. I'm sure eventually all that's going to come out. Remember to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack, where you'll find a lot of great content on intelligence and national security. And in our show notes, you'll find a link to a PodTrack survey. We'd love to have you complete it so we can learn a little bit more about who's listening. Coming up in just a moment, Jeff's interview about military intelligence, including a few revelations about Jeff's own experiences with intelligence and ice cream. Okay, now we're back to military intelligence, which has a robust recruiting campaign on Facebook. Let's listen to a short clip. Captain Rachel Baca, military intelligence officer, United States Army. I chose intelligence because the idea of putting puzzle pieces together really intrigued me. Thinking about what the enemy might do or where we should go to throw off the enemy's idea. You get the intel skill underneath your belt. Um, you become more marketable on the outside. I love my job. Now that's some slick PR. But my next guest, Douglas Wise, says he loved virtually every minute of his 30-year career in intelligence which included 20 years as an Army officer, a decade in senior positions at the CIA, including as a station chief multiple times, and as deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. With the DIA apparently playing a bigger and bigger role in Ukraine, I called him up to discuss U.S. military intelligence, which I'd served in decades ago as a case officer in Vietnam. 
Doug Wise, welcome to Spy Talk. We hear a lot about the CIA and, to a lesser extent, the National Security Agency, or NSA. Don't hear much about defense intelligence, military intelligence, the Defense Intelligence Agency. So, just for starters, tell us the difference between the two. Well, obviously, there's a difference in the entertainment industry because there's mystique uh, associated with CIA that isn't uh, isn't associated with the Department of Defense. Um, the fundamental difference is pretty clear. The Central Intelligence Agency was created to provide intelligence to the national consumer, principally the President of the United States. The Defense Intelligence Agency and the Defense Intelligence Enterprise, which includes the intelligence organizations of the uniformed services, the mission of the Defense Intelligence Enterprise and DIA is to provide intelligence to the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Services, and most importantly, to the commanders of the combatant commands. So the main, main difference, as I've heard it described and been covering this for some time now, is that the CIA provides strategic intelligence. In other words, they want to steal a memo off a prime minister's desk, uh, national leadership of our, uh, of our uh, opponents. Uh, military intelligence focuses more on the weapons uh, and uh, military posture of our opponents. Is that generally correct? I think, Jeff, that, that's, that's fairly accurate. Plans and intentions in the application of military power uh, from an adversarial standpoint, is what the Defense Intelligence Agency would spend uh, a tremendous amount uh, of effort on, as would the Defense Intelligence Enterprise. And it's called foundational intelligence, which is what are the capabilities and what is the posture? What are the shortcomings and the uh, targetable weaknesses of our adversarial um, military services? Mm -hmm. does, does the military have spies? Uh, the military does have uh, clandestine operators. The Defense Intelligence Agency in particular has the Defense Clandestine Service, formerly known as the Defense Human Service, uh, you know, building on the legacy of those like yourself that uh, conducted clandestine human activities. And so there is a very effective clandestine arm of the Department of Defense for the collection of intelligence. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you remarked to me a couple of weeks ago that the Army doesn't do the kind of things that I did in Vietnam, which is to say I ran a spy ring that was targeting North Vietnamese forces and uh, leaders and uh, their weapons and so on, their plans to attack certain targets and so on. And you said to me that the Army doesn't really do that anymore. What did you mean by that? Well, when I said the Army doesn't do that anymore, actually, amongst all the services, and I'm an Army, former Army officer, so I come with that bias, uh, the Army actually does human better than any of the other services and actually makes it a, what I'll call, it's a bad term, but a sub-profession amongst the foreign area officers of the United States Army. So Army officers and Army NCOs become clandestine collectors. The reason why I said what I said is those collectors play into a very, very slow-moving, very cautious bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And it is that bureaucracy that really impedes those very talented, very mission-focused military clandestine collectors from doing the kinds of things that, that you did with very little bureaucracy and much fewer limitations, shall I put it. Hmm. Wow, that sounds serious. What do you mean by overcautious or the bureaucracy impeding? Uh, uh, wh why is it doing that? I, I think it's just because uh, the Department of Defense itself in this business of intelligence is, is just very cautious as a matter of process, procedure, protocol, and culture. Uh, in the clandestine human world, for example, uh, it's not unusual for a case to go to the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence for final approval to be able to conduct that intelligence operation. And I think there's some mm -hmm. legacy bad actors that existed in, in the history of military intelligence that probably were the, was the predicate for that kind of cautiousness. But, you know, having been in the field, 
with military collectors as a chief of station. And having been the deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, it was not unusual for us to have to slow, if not stop the process, to get an approval out of the Pentagon to do something that in my parent agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, would be a decision made by a GS-14 or GS-15. Yeah. Back in my time, I think I only reported to a commander, uh, the local uh, battalion commander, uh, and and uh, there was very little discussion of any about any initiatives that I took. And that may have been a, a bad thing if, if I had done some bad operations, I, uh, but mine was running pretty smoothly. Uh, let's go to a localized conflict now. Let's talk about, say, Ukraine. There's a re- that, now there's a, a looming battlefield if there ever as if there ever was one. Uh, do you suspect that uh, uh, the defense clandestine service is running uh, spies across the line to eyeball Russian uh, uh, military formations, or, or 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 is that just done through technical means now? Well, let me just give you kind of a put on my former senior bureaucrat hat and answer your question by saying I, I, I can only imagine that the full spectrum of U.S. intelligence capabilities are being applied to provide to policymakers the best intelligence they can in terms of the crisis in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I believe that military intelligence has an extraordinary role in the pre-conflict phase of sure. any situation. Uh, it is an opportunity for them to really be on the ground, to develop the networks that you described, uh, develop sources, to really understand the, the history, the culture, the politics, you know, the governmental structure, the nature of the threat, the physicality of, of the ground and the geography, everything from roads to bridges to, you know, conditions of weather and, and meteorology. And so the military intelligence professionals across the board, uh, from a human standpoint, uh, have great opportunity to make significant contributions to not only the combatant commander, but also the national intelligence consumer by being on the ground. And obviously, they wouldn't do this in isolation. They would do this in consultation and coordination with the U.S. ambassador and and with CIA as well. And then as you uh, mentioned, you know, the full range of technological capabilities will certainly be brought to bear, everything from satellites to airplanes to unmanned platforms and uh, and remote collection mm-hmm. from a technical standpoint. And one of those tools uh, is uh, trying to intercept enemy communications uh, to uh, to monitor their activities and so on. Does the principal responsibility for that lie with the various services, uh, radio intercept uh, units, or is that uh, conducted up high by the National Security Agency? Well, the NSA obviously has the doctrinal role to do uh, signals intelligence collection, but there is substantial uh, uniform military and departmental contributions. And what I would just say is as an extension of NSA. So done mm-hmm. under the leadership and under the authorities of NSA, but may not be actually car carrying NSA employees. But at the same time, NSA does have the principal mission to do what you just said, to collect the uh, emanations in its many forms from our adversaries. During the depths of the Afghanistan war, I was hearing from sources that uh, who were disgusted by the fact that uh, 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 military commanders didn't have the patience with MI to develop uh, secret agents uh, to try to penetrate al-Qaeda, to run operations like I did, that they uh, really had a bias toward technical collection, radio intercepts and the like. Um, and as they pointed out, uh, radio intercepts are great, but the enemy also uses them to deceive us, to, uh, to spoof us on, on what they're really up to and that there's no real substitute for having a spy on the inside of the uh, opponent's camp. Um, is that, what do you think about that? Well, Jeff, as you know far better than me, uh, human sources can deceive as well. Sure. Uh, sure. But the reality is, I think, that the decision cycle 
has become so fast. And it began in Afghanistan, quite frankly. Actually, it had its roots in Bosnia, I think, as far back as that, where we learned a lot of lessons about actionable intelligence. And we, the U.S. intelligence community began to, to create and disseminate intelligence that was actionable, not used to develop you know, grand policy and strategy. But in Afghanistan, not appreciably different than Iraq, any other crisis since, uh, the decision-making cycle by commanders, whether they're a company commander or whether they're the four-star uh, commander at the combat command or ISAF commander, U.S. Forces Iraq, both of which I served under, uh, their decision-making cycle is so fast now that the time it takes for human to be responsive is what really creates the challenge for human uh, of today to be able to satisfy the immediate needs of commanders, human, it's it's very difficult to do that. Let's decode that a little bit. What you mean about the time lag and so on is that it takes time to co- to uh, communicate with a with an undercover spy in the enemy's camp, to set up a meeting, to meet safely with them, to get a debriefing or reports like I did. I a couple of times a week I would go meet. Uh, a young boy uh, actually on a beach uh, who would be selling ice cream from a box and he would sell me ice cream with reports wrapped around the cone uh, and I would take them back and I would translate them and then uh, uh, deliver them to local U.S. military command, mostly uh, the 1st Marine Division, uh, G2. Um, So that's very time-consuming and, of course, uh, you have to make sure you're not being watched, that the enemy uh, counterintelligence forces aren't uh, uh, tracking your agents or yourself. Um, and, and that's the time lag that you're talking about, right? That's correct. Assuming in the context of your comments that, you know, the 1st Marine Division had an armada of Hueys ready, ready to go into an LZ, you know, the commander would want to know, you know, is it a hot LZ? Is it a cold LZ? If it's a hot LZ, how much, how, how many enemy are there? What's their capabilities? Uh, that's an immediate need. Mm-hmm. And the process that you so accurately described would not be the process that would help that commander make that decision as to whether to land or not land. Mm-hmm. Of course, the real emergency here and the principal responsibility of all U.S. intelligence in the Ukraine uh, theater is warning. We want to know if the Russians are actually going to attack. Um, so where would you say the best um, uh, information flow would come from on something like that? that The Russians are, in fact, about to pull the trigger. Well, I think it's a, it's a collaborative effort. It's not where one agency of the IC or even just uniquely limited to the IC. I mean, we have Department of State, we have Department of Defense interaction, uh, we have legislative interaction with uh, both Russians and, and, and officials in Ukraine. So it's really a collaborative, integrated, homogenized, pasteurized effort to provide that indications and warning to the policymaker. It doesn't mm-hmm. just come from one agency. As you know, and as I practiced in Vietnam, the first question you ask an agent when you haven't seen him for a while or her for a while is, uh, is there any attack in the offing? We were always looking for that uh, tip off that an attack was coming that we didn't know about. Now, we said early on in the show that the CIA gets all the glory, you might say, in movies and books and memoirs and and so on, DIA uh, Get short shrift. Uh, I'm waiting for the movie uh, uh, to come where the hero is a defense intelligence agency guy or army uh, spy. So, uh, but tell us about some greatest hits in military intelligence history. Well, Jeff, you're absolutely right. And as we talked earlier, uh, it's unfortunate that the, the professionals in the defense intelligence enterprise don't get the credit that they they deserve because they're equally talented, equally driven, and, and well-trained, quite frankly. Uh, and their focus is slightly different, which is not very attractive to either Hollywood or perhaps maybe the American people. So, so the enterprise itself, DIA preeminent among them, you know, it really gets a short shrift in that regard. But 
you can go all the way back to World War II if you really wanted. And you're talking about the enigma, you know, breaking the the uh, the German the German code and certainly breaking the mm-hmm. the the Japanese Purple Code. A battle of Midway wouldn't have happened without military intelligence. The Cuban Missile Crisis uh, is another great example of where almost exclusively it was defense intelligence analysts that gave the president the information that he needed to make the decision. And then back to your time or forward to your time, you know, none of the the North Vietnamese bombing campaigns would have been done as effectively as they were without tremendous targeting effort by defense intelligence analysts. And I think you can go even uh, forward to Urgent Fury and Grenada. And then I already mentioned Bosnia, you know, uh, the whole national intelligence support team that was provided by the defense intelligence enterprise uh, and the collaboration with with CIA as well. I served there, so I'm I'm a witness to that uh, collaboration and integration. And then, you know, in more modern times related to the counterterrorism issue, uh, the killing of Zarqawi was almost exclusively uh, f- from analytic mm-hmm. collection and analytic efforts. Zarqawi uh, was a kind of rogue Al Qaeda guy. Uh, yeah, he was the Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, first leader uh, at the time, and uh, and the defense analyst and targeters, you know, put him on the X, and then obviously there was a strike and, and it killed him. And and you could even argue uh, that, uh, you know, many of the significant uh, raids and strikes in both Afghanistan and, and Iraq uh, were due to the tremendous effort that the defense intelligence analysts uh, put towards uh, that effort. Do you know whether the defense uh, intelligence uh, structure was giving warning uh, up the chain of command that the Afghan army wasn't what it says it was. It was really not capable. Uh, there was a you know considerable graft and corruption at all levels of the Afghan uh, army and police forces. Do you think the DIA or military intelligence agents we were were reporting on that? I think the intelligence community was pretty honest and candid about that. Uh, Obviously, you know, when you when you're working with a counterpart and, and you're training and you're investing, uh, it erodes some of the impartiality. And I think it breeds a little bit of bias. I think you and I probably shared that when we handled human agents. You had to have confidence, believe in the agent. And that's the benefit of having somebody not name you or me take a look at the case and bring that impartiality. So I think the intelligence community was probably the most candid and honest about the state of play. But as Americans, whether we're an intelligence officer or whether we're an operator, we want to believe that those that we're working with will, in fact, acquit themselves just like us. And that's the flaw in the whole process of creating institutions in our own image which was not the first time that we did that in Afghanistan. We did that in Iraq. We did that in Vietnam. We've done it in many places. So that's my answer to your question. Hmm. Now, Doug Wise, you have uh, uh, an almost unique viewpoint, having served 20 years in the Army uh, at a very high level at CIA and as Deputy Director of the DIA. What's your assessment of how well U.S. intelligence is doing Today, I know that's kind of a broad question. I just wanted to get your opinion. Well, uh, is this going to be an answer that you, that your listeners would probably expect me to say? I'm extremely proud and pleased, as well as should you, because you know we've we're standing on the shoulders of people just like you, Jeff, and mm. the response of the intelligence community to the pandemic was extraordinary. How's that? Because in the end, the collection of intelligence is a very personal activity, whether it's technical or whether it's human. And so the pandemic, you know, had the possibility of really disrupting U.S. intelligence. And our colleagues today did, both leaders and practitioners did just an absolutely great job. I'm sorry. Hold on just a second, Doug. Uh, could you drill down a little bit on that? I'm, I'm a little bit uh, surprised by that answer, that intelligence 
uh, in the sense that we've been talking about intelligence gathering had a role to play in uh, the pandemic. Could you could you just revisit that briefly? It, it didn't have a role to play in, in terms of collecting, although the impact of the pandemic on national stability or instability certainly was an interest to the national policymaker, whether it's an ally or an adversary. What I'm saying is that the people and institutions of the intelligence community adapted to the extraordinary obstacles posed by, by the pandemic. I'm very pleased with that. And, and how did they do that? I am a little reluctant to provide you some details, which is, should be no surprise to either you or your, or your listeners. But the reality is that the leaders quickly recognized that they had to do things differently, and the practitioners were given much greater freedom of action as intelligence professionals in the collection discipline, consistent with U.S. law, obviously. Hmm. So I'm exceptionally pleased with, with that fact. And absent, outside the, the pandemic, I think U.S. intelligence is in, is in pretty good shape. Are there challenges? You bet. You know, we're entering into the great powers competition. We're getting out of the uh, I, wrong term. We're not getting out of the CT. We're just reprioritizing it. CT meaning uh, counterterrorism. Yeah, counterterrorism in favor of focusing on those nations that could destroy our way of life and our nation. And arguably, you know, those are hard targets. That's the term of art. And it's well, well applied because those are hard targets. But the reality is even those hard targets have vulnerabilities and opportunities that meld very well with the capabilities of the U.S. intelligence community. I think that the leadership of the IC is, is giving freedom of action that had never been given before. I think the adaptation, the incorporation of the extraordinarily rapid developments of technology and applying that to collection, to analysis, to storage, to access and dissemination of intelligence, I, the American people your, and your listeners who may not be American people uh, should be very pleased with uh, the current state of affairs of the U.S. intelligence community. I'm very pleased, but I'm very proud of my colleagues. It's good to hear that, uh, Doug. You have to admit, though, that your uh, assessment is that much at odds is the general I think consensus or feeling about U.S. intelligence that it really uh, has failed uh, with tragic consequences uh, in uh, the WMD uh, subject, uh, for example, leading up to the Iraq invasion, that the invasion was made on false uh, pretenses, um, and that um, intelligence failed to uh, stop the 911 plot that the U.S. intelligence failed overall in Afghanistan. And, and I think that's more of the prevailing opinion about U.S. intelligence today. And this comes along with what, we, what has been reported to be uh, devastating losses to the CIA in China and Iran. So that's there. Well, I, I guess as a, as a former intelligence officer and now wretched pensioner, hmm. I, I would it is an unfortunate fact that, you know, our shortcomings and failures are always subject to quite immediate discovery and, and, and deep deconstruction and, and publicized publication, you know. Uh, the successes, it, it is un, undeniable that those end up being quite confidential and not quite as public, and that's the way it should be. And and I think you may remember from your own days as an intelligence professional, you just signed up to that little unfortunate cultural fact. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm not exculpating at all some of the strategic intelligence failures that we've had. But at the same time, I'm just telling you that today from what I see from the outside and have a little bit of privileged sense of the inside, that U.S. intelligence community is well-funded, well-postured, well-trained, well-organized, and it doesn't mean it's perfect. But one of the things that, that Americans do exceptionally well is we actually spend, just like you did a second ago, we spend time on our shortcomings, and we don't try to hide them, and, and we actually try to learn from them 
and the intelligence community does that exceptionally well. You're saying, I think, that there are unknown successes in our intelligence infrastructure, the CIA, the DIA, NSA, that uh, are not known and may never be known that balance out the record, the grades of U.S. intelligence. Yeah, I think so. I think it, the, the non-public successes, whether they're small, you know, one bit of collection or one human recruitment, or whether they're major, whether it's a significant technological capability that's applied, uh, that'll never be made public, as you said, yes. Uh, whether that it balances it out from a strategic context, I'll leave that for uh, mathematicians to look at whether they cancel each other out. Okay. But I, 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 you know, it's very easy for a wretched pensioner to be critical. And, and for anybody that follows me on Twitter, you'll know that I'm not shy about being being critical, particularly of our, our politicians and leadership. Uh, but I'm very pleased with one, the, the, the diverse, talented, well-trained workforce, regardless of the agency, and the extraordinary capabilities that the private sector and the private sector government co cooperation has put the U.S. intelligence community in a preeminent position. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I have great confidence. Uh, one last uh, question, uh, or switching to a, a little bit uh, different pew in the church here. Um, it's emerging that um, many intelligence professionals, both off-duty, uh, active duty, and retired, are have been signing up with these right-wing militia groups and uh, um, extremist groups. What do you make of that? Uh, to say I'm disappointed would be an, uh, an understatement. I do not understand the psychology of the ultra-violent right wing. And I'm not talking about the conservatives of our nation. Uh, I'm talking about those who are extreme conservatives and want to action that, that extremist conservative views and commit violence. Uh, the 6th January is a perfectly great example of that. And to know that there were law enforcement professionals and uh, but, current. But, but well, I'm talking here about intelligence professionals of all people signing up with these extremist groups. Uh, one uh, group in particular I've heard is like 95% former intelligence people, military uh, and civilian. Uh, I, I, make sense of that for me. Well, I, I don't know whether that, that statistic is actually uh, real or not. I presume that amongst the, our intelligence colleagues are people that hold ultra right-wing views, and the psychology of them holding those views is a mystery to me. Uh, it's a mystery to me. Mike Flynn is a perfectly good example of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a QAnon guy now. I suspect that money's involved as well. Um, before we go, I have to ask you, tell me, can you tell us about your greatest spy triumph of your own career? Uh, well, uh, I, I regret to inform, but, uh, you know, my greatest triumph was, was actually being in a position where I could enable others to have had greatest triumph. Any success that I had, and I'm certainly, I really I would struggle to answer your question, because it's a relative thing. What I think is kind of a neat thing to have accomplished might be small indeed relative to that of my colleagues. But the reality is, I think my, my greatest satisfaction, my greatest accomplishment has been to serve with just some remarkable people doing remarkable things in remarkable places. That was an honor for me. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Doug Wise. Great to have you on the show. And we'll have you back again sometime. Great, Jeff. It's an honor, and thanks for, uh, for doing this to help inform the American public. That's Doug Wise, now a happy pensioner in New Mexico. I learned a lot from that interview, including about you. That ice cream cone story was really priceless. Is there more? <laughs> there is more. I did write a long memoir uh, in the Washington Post Sunday magazine several years ago about my 
brief, brilliant career as a spy. But the thing that was really uh, useful to me was to enter the clandestine world for a couple of years. So I, I think it really gave me a foot up in understanding uh, and more empathy toward uh, CIA and, and other uh, field operators and what they go through. I, I got to tell you, uh, I don't know if I'd had much of a career as a field operator myself. I was always really nervous when I went to a meeting with an agent. Uh, you know, I'd look around, I'd say, who's following me? And hell, I couldn't tell who was following me. So that probably was not my forte. I'd probably been a better analyst than a case officer, but it was a really educational experience and uh, a fascinating time in my life. I'm sure. Thanks for joining us for Spy Talk. Subscribe and you won't miss a single episode. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve and Jeff is at Spy Talker. Yeah, thanks for listening again to another episode of Spy Talk. I'm Jeff Stein. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. And I'm Gene Meserve. Happy holidays. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.